Max Armstrong. I'm Orion Samuelson. Dateline, Scottsdale, Arizona, Friday, January 17. And what a January we've had so far when it comes to news that impacts both agriculture and Wall Street. And today we saw Wall Street uh, again continuing the strength, opening at record highs and pretty much hitting those record highs all the way through the session. At the end of the day, the Dow Industrial Average up 49 points to end at 29,347. The S&P 500 up 12 and a half points to end the day at 3,329. And the Nasdaq Composite added 32 points to end the day and the week at 9,389. So as we look at those activities and those events for the week, it's a week that has seen nothing but headlines and most of them positive. The uh, global markets impacted by the strength in U.S. markets. Key world equity indices scaled new highs today, boosted by a surge in U.S. housing starts to levels that we haven't seen uh, since 2006 And I'll talk more about that in a moment. But uh, let's look ahead to next week, some of the events and activities. First of all, the big economic summit, an annual event in Davos, Switzerland. And world leaders will be in attendance, including President Trump. So we'll be keeping an eye on that. But uh, other reports we'll be watching for, reports from Netflix, Intel, and Texas Instruments next week may hint at what's to come in the December quarterly earnings season. Some investors concerned of possible danger signs that could knock Wall Street after its latest surge to record highs. Now, the S&P 500 off to a strong start in January. It's up 3% so far this year, fueled by the truce in the U.S.-China trade war, low interest rates, and signs that the economy remains healthy. Analysts on average expect reports to show S&P 500 earnings per share fell eight-tenths of a percent in the fourth quarter, with technology earnings seen up six-tenths of a percent. And investors are looking beyond fourth-quarter results at what companies may say about outlooks and plans for investment in light of the recently signed Phase 1 trade deal between the U.S. and China. Now, earnings estimates for the fourth quarter have already weakened slightly in the latest week as initial reports from big banks and a smattering of other companies filtered in. And one analyst said most of the rally we had in 2019 was in anticipation of better earnings in 2020. Rather than getting caught up in what the fourth quarter numbers are, the attention will be on what, if any, revisions you get to the first and second quarter. The S&P Information Technology Index, that includes such market heavyweights as Apple, Intel, and Microsoft, has led Wall Street so far in 2020, nearly a 6% gain, and it's up 50% over the past year, the strongest performer over that period. 
The index is now trading at 22 times expected earnings. That's its highest multiple since around early 2005. The S&P 500 trading is at about 18 times expected earnings. So uh, one analyst said they're going to be heightened attention to guidance to increase comfort levels with valuations given the strength we have seen in the last two months in the majority of the big tech names. Underscoring the importance of results from Intel on Thursday and Apple on January 28th, the information technology sector is expected to have accounted for nearly 22% of total S&P 500 earnings in the last quarter of 2019. Technology earnings growth for 2020 estimated at 10.5%. That's expected to contribute about two percentage points to the S&P 500's expected growth rate of 9.7%. And some other names that we'll be watching. Netflix shares stumbled last year on worries over subscriber growth and the ballooning cost of high-budget productions such as The Crown and The Irishman. Netflix options imply a 7.6% swing for the shares in either direction by Friday, January 24. So a lot to keep your eye on and a lot going on in the business world as well as in the agricultural world. The oil market, incidentally, did steady, and that coming because of optimism on the Chinese economy, the world's biggest crude importer, raising some questions over the fuel demand and that activity in the oil market, and of course the ongoing tensions in the Middle East. Brent crude futures up 23 cents today to end at $64.85 a barrel, and U.S. crude today up 2 cents to settle at $58.54 a barrel. Other activity to watch next week, and uh, as I mentioned, the 2020 World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos is scheduled to get underway, and uh, other countries will look forward to hearing President Trump's assessment of the U.S. economy. Netflix expected to post an increase in fourth quarter revenue. Streaming giant had a strong content slate in the quarter with films like The Irishman and a number of shows in local languages. United Airlines expected to report an increase in fourth quarter profit, helped by higher travel demand. Investors will look for 2020 outlook and commentary on the grounded Boeing 737. And uh, there's a lot more to talk about on the 737 activity because it did not get much in the way of good news this week over the ongoing challenge of the 737 MAX. So that will be watched very carefully as it impacts other segments of the economy as well. The Johnson & Johnson Company expected to report a higher fourth quarter profit Wednesday, boosted by sales of its cancer drugs, and investors will look for commentary on the several lawsuits related to its baby powders and medical devices. 
On the U.S. economic tap, the National Association of Realtors on Wednesday likely to show existing home sales up 1.7%. Thursday, the Labor Department expected to report initial claims for state unemployment benefits increased to 215,000 for the week ended January 18. That number would be up uh, from 204,000 in the previous week. Comcast Corporation expected to post an increase in fourth quarter revenue on Thursday. Intel Corporation expected to report a drop in fourth quarter revenue on the same day. Back to the airlines, Southwest expected to post a decline in fourth quarter profit on Thursday as that U.S. carrier continues to be hurt by the ongoing grounding of the Boeing 737 MAX jet. American Express Company scheduled to report its fourth quarter results on Friday before markets open. It's expected to post gains in profit as unemployment rates remain low and consumers spent more during the U.S. holiday season. And then looking at our neighbors to the north, the Bank of Canada likely to keep the interest rate steady at 1.75% on Wednesday. So uh, a lot to keep an eye on. And then let's uh, end this segment by reminding you that Monday is a national holiday. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. That means government offices will be closed for the day. It means Federal Reserve will be closed. And of course, Wall Street, Board of Trade, Mercantile Exchange all close for the holiday That is a national holiday on Monday. So keep that in mind as you do your trading uh, at the beginning of the week and then later on in the week. A few times a year, we like to check in for what I consider the best assessment of farmland value that we get throughout the year. Farmers National Company, based in Omaha, Nebraska, and with me on the line this morning is Randy Dick, who is, golly, let me get that uh, title right, uh, Senior Vice President, Real Estate Operations. Is that correct, Randy? That's correct, Dorian. Well, good to have you back here. And the thing that made it especially interesting was the headline on your assessment that came out a couple of weeks ago, and the headline Will 2020 be the year the land market tumbles? So that'll be my first question. What's your answer to that? <laughs> well, land market or land values are so important to everybody in agriculture, whether you're the farmer or a landowner, because uh, it's uh, important for the producer's balance sheet, their borrowing capacity, and their, their livelihood. And it's important for the owner because it's an important asset that that they own and they're able to rent out. So the question that's been, as we've watched the land market over the last number of years since 2013, is with the economic conditions and the lower commodity prices uh, in agriculture, it's why haven't land values gone down more? And I think 2020 is kind of that watershed year. Are we going to stay on the plateau or get better? Ultimately, I think there's actually enough support in the market and what we're seeing right now that it's going to pretty much stay on that plateau and may not tumble much further. 
How much impact did the trade debates with China and the European Union and other of our customers, how much impact did that have on demand and sale prices for farmland here? What that did, uh, of course, it hurt the, uh, you know, income of producers, uh, for sure. Uh, but a lot of that was made up with the MFP payments. And if we hadn't had the MFP payments, I think we'd had a lot more pessimistic outlook on land values and ag economy. Those pumped a lot of cash in uh, to farmers, producers' hands, and that kept that buying interest and demand uh, pretty steady, um, although very cautious on uh, when buying farmland. So that had a big impact. Uh, if we, again, wouldn't have had those payments, it had been a different picture. So who is doing the selling these days and who is doing the buying? Sellers continue to be mainly the estates, uh, trusts, uh, families who have recently inherited the farmland, uh, and maybe some families that have owned that land for a while and are deciding that for whatever reason they want to divide up the uh, estate finally and, and they come about to selling. There is some selling from uh, farmers and ranchers who are under some financial stress and they're it helps them, you know, uh, with their balance sheet or cash flow. Most of those sales happen quietly where they might find an investor locally or uh, somewhere that, you know, they can sell to and then continue to operate that farm. Uh, buyers uh, still predominantly, the larger percentage are local farmers who want to expand. They've got uh, borrowing capacity or cash saved that they can make that purchase to, uh, and expand their operation. Individual investors and investment funds are stepping in a little bit more. I've uh, seen uh, some uptick in the interest, but again, they're uh, cautious in what they buy and it has to be within their investment parameters. We did see increased activity a few years ago for recreational land, city folks who wanted a place to go and hunt. Is that still continuing? I think that's fairly uh, steady also. Uh, nothing wild about that going on. But if you're in the right areas, regions close to the cities, has that uh, recreational type land, that, that demand is, is definitely there, but it's nothing uh, going wild on it. And then the type of sales. Are we doing more uh, auctions than we are private treaty sales? What's the uh, lineup there? That'll depend on the region. Uh, area like Iowa, uh, the public outcry auction still is a predominant way of selling farmland. Uh, it's very well accepted. It works very well. Eastern Corn Belt, we've seen uh, fewer of those auctions and more or an increase in the private treaty listing. Even though land values for good quality land are remaining fairly steady, that demand that buyers are more cautious. So we're going to the away from the auctions a little bit. You get in the northern uh, regions, uh, northern plains, the uh, bid sales are uh, a little more prevalent. Again, auctions uh, just uh, not as public auctions are not as prevalent as some places. So it'll vary. Uh, in the plains, you get a combination, a little bit of everything. 
So let's talk a little bit about Farmers National Company because you've been around for a long time. I've been quoting the things that you've been saying for a long time. A little background on where you operate in the country and how active you are in managing and selling farmland. You bet. Um, we uh, manage and sell uh, farms and ranches in 28, 29 states. Um, actually, we're licensed in 30 states from the Pacific Northwest to uh state of New York um, and the uh, southeastern United States to handle uh, some uh, land sales, real estate sales, and so forth. We manage uh, about 2 million acres of uh, land and timberland and uh, worth about $9.2 billion. So have quite a reach, uh, mainly through the Grain Belt, Ohio to the Colorado and Canada down through Texas. Well, I notice in your press release with the headline that I quoted earlier that uh, you divide up the report into uh, Iowa and Wisconsin and then another area, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Missouri, and Arkansas. Can you give me an idea of the direction of land values in those areas? Sure. In Iowa, uh, for instance, uh, some of our Auctions this fall and this early winter have had uh, some good prices. You know, if it's a good quality, good tillable, efficient to farm, uh, highly productive, that land is in demand. If it's lower quality, uh, the average quality yields aren't as good, harder to farm. Uh, Those continue to soften a little bit, not as much demand, a little harder to sell for sure. Of course, Wisconsin, with the last number of years here that the dairy industry has gone through, has seen that consolidation uh, continue. We've seen uh, dairy producers retire uh, or, for financial reasons, get out. So uh, even though good cropland is in, uh, will, will sell, it gets a little tougher because you have the operations with facilities and so forth. So that's a little tougher market. Eastern Corn Belt, um, Definitely uh, good value cropland holds its own, uh, but there's you know less for sale, which in a lot of regions that really helps support the price because there's just not quite as much for sale uh, as there was a few years ago. So looking forward, where do you see the market going from the standpoint of ownership and rental? What's going to happen to cash rents? <laughs> What we're seeing in our company as we uh, negotiate and renew cash rent leases on uh, behalf of our landowner clients, we're seeing those pretty steady. Uh, Actually, in some areas where there's uh, less hesitance to renew uh, by the the, uh, farmer uh, from the same terms they had last year or the year before, Um, I think, again, in a lot of places, yields were better than had in been anticipated, and grain price prospects, uh, they're a little more optimistic on those with the trade issues with crop sizes being down some and, you know, all those issues going on through. So I think there's a little optimism there at least to uh, renew those leases at the same rates that they have been. Now, in some areas, the very northern plains of North Dakota, there's a little more challenge to that with the harvest and uh, delay and, uh, you know, loss of harvest and loss of crop that they had in that area. But, um, you know, looking forward, uh, you know, I think there's always that hope 
that next year will be better when you're in agriculture. I've lived that all my life, and you always look to the next year. Final uh, subject, relationship between absentee landowners and their tenant farmers. Do you get involved in a lot of debates in that area, or do they get along pretty well? They they do. Um, you know, when I farmed back in Illinois for many years, we had, uh, you know, landowners that my father worked with and uh, continued to work with as long as I farmed. And so many of those relationships between farmers and the, as a tenant, landowners, as landlord, go back, you know, three generations at least. And uh, those work uh, pretty well as long as everybody's honest, they share information, and work at it as a business uh, between the the two parties. Uh, We as a company, um, you know, we get involved as kind of that third party to help uh, on behalf of the landowner to know what's going on in that land rental market, the land sale market, commodity prices, uh, ag technology, and uh, we work very well with the uh, tenants uh, because we understand what they're going through, and we try and come to a fair and equitable arrangement when it comes to leases each year. And what would be the most important ingredient in that relationship, being honest and staying in close contact? Absolutely. As we know about anything, it's having good communication. You know, if there's a problem with the crop season or something or there needs to be a repair on the farm, everybody needs to communicate and then size it up on a business, business-like business uh, uh, matter. And uh, having that uh, being, you know, fair and honest about everything that comes up makes it all work well. And as you said earlier in the interview, you have to be an optimist if you're going to be involved in agriculture, whether it's absentee ownership or tenant farming. That You really have to be an optimist, don't you? Yes, you do. And, uh, you know, each year when spring comes, uh, it always quickens the heart of the farmer and the landowners and us as managers because uh, we like to get out there and, and produce a crop. Well, thank you very much for your time. We look forward to staying in touch with you throughout the year. Agricultural news was pretty well dominated by the signing of Phase 1 of the U.S.-China trade deal and then the confirmation in the Senate of the U.S.-Canada-Mexico deal. That's the one I call NAFTA number 2 because it replaces NAFTA that was put together back in, I think, 1996, when President Bill Clinton did the signing of the Canada-U.S.-Mexico trade deal. But uh, just about every agricultural organization in the country said thank you for getting these two deals done so we can perhaps get some order back into markets without a lot of concern and a lot of worry. And I noted as I watched the signing of the agreement in the White House that uh, Pat Roberts of Kansas was present. President paid tribute to him because he has always been in favor of the free trade or fair trade of what you want to call it. And uh, Senator Roberts said this agreement is a big step toward a stronger, more reliable trading relationship between the U.S., and China. 
And I mentioned a trading date earlier in the program. There's another date for you to remember. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's Risk Management Agency reminding producers that their crop insurance premiums for the 2019 crop year are due January 31st. Under this change, policies that do not have the premium paid by January 31st will have interest attached beginning on February 1st, calculated from the date of the premium billing notice. USDA had deferred to January 31 the accrual of interest on 2019 crop year insurance premiums for most policies with a premium billing date of August 15, 2019 to help the large number of farmers and ranchers affected by extreme weather in 2019. But again, that uh, has to be in by January 31st. And uh, good news from Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue this week. Uh, The Secretary said he expected the federal government to pay farmers a third and final tranche of 2019 trade A, that coming a day after the initial deal with China was signed. Washington has paid two out of three parts of a $16 billion aid package announced back in May to compensate farmers for losses sustained during the 18-month trade war. And the third had been expected in January. It still might make it, but uh, keep an eye on the mailbox or whatever you get your government check-in. The... uh, Trump administration had already spent $12 billion in trade aid for farmers in 2018. And uh, Secretary Perdue said that farmers should not expect a new bailout package this year beyond the $28 billion already approved. Back to that uh, U.S.-Canada-Mexico trade agreement. Mexican President Manuel López Obrador called the deal's approval good news for the Mexican economy, but Canada still needs to approve the deal before it can take effect and replace NAFTA. It was signed by the leaders of the United States, Mexico, and Canada in September of 2018, but since it took this long they are going to have to get quick approval from the governments of the three countries before that trade agreement will take place. So as we look at the markets, not a lot of reaction to the signing of the grain agreements, approval certainly, but not much in the way of market reaction. And so at the end of the day, the front month lean hog futures at the Mercantile Exchange settled about 1% higher. And uh, basically because of fears that a weekend winter storm in the plains and Midwest would slow the transport of livestock and complicate pork and beef plant operations. We see some significant disruptions on the pork side and we see disruptions on the beef side with plants having trouble getting loads out the door. That according to uh, an analyst of livestock trade 
and particularly when it's involving a weather situation. February Lee Nog futures ended up 80 cents a hundredweight, and the April contract ended up 32 cents a hundredweight. But one forecaster said areas of moderate to heavy snow are forecast over much of the upper Midwest, Great Lakes, and the interior northeast and northern New England. And freezing rain expected from the southern plains into the mid-Mississippi Valley and the mid-Atlantic region, according to the National Weather Service. A weekend to be careful when you're doing outdoor chores for your livestock. And it's uh, also a, a weekend to watch highway safety very closely because we're already getting reports of accidents on many highways that are impacted by freezing rain. Grain market, well, it was ending the week on a pretty good note today. Corn futures up 3.7% today, more than recovering from Thursday's 3% drop, helped by a mix of short covering and expectations of increased export demand for U.S. supplies. The uh, March corn contract up 13 and three quarter cents for the day. That's its biggest single day move since October. March wheat ended up five and a quarter cents, and March soybeans ended up five and three quarter cents. So uh, not a bad day for the grain markets because of a combination, trade agreements, and the weather forecast that could have an impact on markets across the country. Well, that's our time for today here on the markets. As always, we thank you for joining us. And we hope you'll be back again next week for the markets.